This episode features dramatizations and discussions of rape, murder, and violence against women. We'd like to advise an extra warning for sensitive content. If you or someone you know has been assaulted, you can call 800-656-HOPE to speak with a trained counselor 24-7. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. Something to note, all myths have many versions and variations. For this episode, we've selected those we felt are the most dramatic and entertaining and supplemented them with dramatizations and additional research into ancient Roman myths and traditions. Our myths may not always be the version you're familiar with, but we hope you'll enjoy them. Rhea Silvia didn't remember how she got to the grove, or when. But when she opened her eyes, she found herself standing by a river in the dead of night. By the gods, where am I? The landscape was unfamiliar. She was surrounded by a thicket of trees. In front of her, dozens of willows dipped gracefully into a river bathed in moonlight. It was sublime, but the grove's strange beauty only stoked Rhea's growing panic. If the head priest discovered she had left the temple grounds after dark, she would be beaten. Or worse. She had to find her way back before anyone noticed she was gone. Rhea looked around, searching in vain for a path to guide her back to the city. But there was nothing but the river and a dense, dark forest as far as she could see. Hello? Is anyone here? She strained her ears for any reply and heard only the sounds of the woods. But though there was no sign of humans, Rhea Silvia was not alone. She felt warm breath on her ear as the voice spoke. Hello, Rhea. (gasps) Rhea whipped around only to find no one was next to her. Instead, a stranger stood underneath the nearest willow cloaked in shadow. But when he spoke again, his voice sounded like he was inches away. My, you're far from home. It's so rare to encounter one of Vesta's precious virgins outside her temple. (laughs) Gods know what could happen if they stray too far. The stranger stepped out from the shadows. Rhea saw dark curls and bare skin obscured only by a robe hanging loosely from rippling shoulders. And in his right hand, he held a gleaming spear. He seemed to glow in the moonlight, but Rhea realized it wasn't the moon that was radiating light. He was. Mars. I must say, Rhea, you are so much lovelier in person. In a just world, such beauty wouldn't be wasted on silly vows of chastity. Lucky for you, I consider myself a just god. Rhea stood at the riverbank, paralyzed. She willed herself to move, to run. But in a moment, Mars had crossed the grove and was towering over her, eyes burning. His hand closed around her wrist. Please, please, I am sworn to Vesta. They'll have me killed. I'm begging you. They'll bury me alive. Yes, no doubt you'll have hardships to endure. 
But I assure you, your sacrifice will bring forth generations of glory. Your sons, our sons, will be great men. Mars gripped Rhea's wrist and dragged her down the riverbank, her white robe smearing with mud. She fought and screamed, calling for help, but her cries were drowned by the rushing river. Rhea woke up gasping for air. She looked around wildly, but she was no longer in the strange willow grove. She was back in her chamber at the temple, safe. It was just a dream. Nothing but a dream. She breathed deep, laughing in relief. How foolish she was. Rhea wiped the tears from her face, but as she withdrew her hands, she saw they were covered in mud. Welcome to Mythology, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we present dramatic stories from ancient mythology and explore their origins. I'm your host and narrator, Vanessa Richardson. You can find all episodes of Mythology and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we're telling the story of Romulus and Remus, the twin sons of the war god Mars and the mythological founders of Rome. First, we'll discuss Romulus and Remus's tragic origin and their adventures as young men. Then next week, we'll explore Rome's glorious rise and the corruption that tears it apart. Coming up, Romulus and Remus are born into a cruel world. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush which we've done enough of in this ad, too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Twins, brothers, 
demigods, rulers. The legend of Romulus and Remus has encapsulated the spirit of the Roman Empire for centuries. Supposedly born around 770 BCE, the brothers' story has been retold by many ancient scholars, from the historian Plutarch to the poet Virgil. Through the multitude of portrayals, the men became patriotic symbols for the Roman Empire. But the story of Romulus and Remus extended far past Rome's borders. Their likeness could be found on ancient coins, breastplates, and works of art from all around Europe. From statues in ancient Italy and mosaics in England to portrayals in the Renaissance, Romulus and Remus were, in a word, iconic. But is there any historical basis for this story? Rome is a real city after all, so it must have had founders. There's plenty of debate among ancient and contemporary scholars alike about whether the twins actually existed. But as is so often the case, the point where history ends and mythology begins is difficult to ascertain. What we can say for certain is that the story of Romulus and Remus was critical to Roman identity. By deifying their founders, ancient Romans created an origin story for their civilization built on the idea of glory and destiny. The twins' divine parentage through Mars became proof that Rome itself had the favor of the gods, and as a result, all of the empire's actions seem to have been endorsed by the heavens. But as we know, the gods are far from kind and just beings, and it's from the seed of their cruelty that Romulus and Remus were born. Rhea Silvia followed the procession of priestesses down the stone corridors of the Temple of Vesta. Her lips moved in the rhythm of her sister's chanting, and her feet followed their path. But the young priestess's mind wasn't in the virgin goddess's temple at all. She was lost in a memory from her past. She was running through the markets with her brothers, laughing, her dress filthy, her feet aching, but undoubtedly happy, free in a way she would never be again. As Rhea's mind wandered, she stepped on the robes of the priestess in front of her, causing them both to stumble. The woman shot Rhea a bitter look over her shoulder. Forgive me, sister. My mind was consumed by reverie for our goddess. With a huff, the priestess turned back around and the procession continued. The markets of Rhea's childhood seemed so distant now. In the quiet halls of the Vestal Temple, that place seemed a lifetime away. The Vestal Virgins were a holy order first established in the city of Alba Longa. They had been chosen as children from prestigious families to dedicate their lives to serving the virgin goddess, Vesta. For 30 years, a priestess would uphold a vow of chastity, spending her days maintaining the temple and tending to the fire at the goddess's altar. To be chosen as a vestal was a great honor, but for Rhea Silvia, it was a prison. She had been a princess once. Her father, Numitor, was heir to the throne of Alba Longa, and she'd had as many freedoms as a young girl could hope for at the time. Her world had been bright, but then everything changed. Her father was overthrown by his brother, Amulius. Amulius had not stopped there. 
According to Roman historian Livy, he also murdered Rhea's older brothers in order to preserve power, yet for some reason he spared her life. He forced Rhea to become a Vestal. The vow of chastity ensured no heir of Numitor would threaten Amulius's reign. But now, even in this gilded prison, Rhea Silvia was no longer safe. Her strange dream in the Willow Grove had haunted her for months. She didn't dare tell anyone what had happened that night. She scrubbed the blood and mud from her robes while the other sisters slept, terrified of being discovered. Rhea could trust no one with her secret, so she kept the dream to herself. But despite the constant burning incense of the temple, the scent of wet mud and sweat lingered. And when she closed her eyes for prayer, she saw Mars' burning gaze. The knot in her stomach, the one she had thought was from despair, anger, humiliation, never went away. It grew. Rhea was consumed by sickness for weeks and drained of energy. And as her body changed, she knew. Mars had kept his promise. She was carrying his child. He'd condemned her to die. Rhea followed the other Vestals into the inner sanctuary. Inside, Vesta's sacred fire cast flickering shadows across the walls. As they filed into the dark room, Rhea spotted the stern Pontifex Maximus, the chief high priest, who was standing at the altar as usual. Tonight, he seemed to be particularly tense. She could see his jaw clenching underneath his carefully practiced expression of serenity. Rhea rolled her eyes. What could it be this time? Were the marbled floors not swept to his liking? The ceremonial cakes not properly leavened? She was almost certain he looked for issues because he took pleasure in beating them. But as Rhea crossed to the other side of the altar, her blood ran cold. Standing beside the chief high priest was her uncle, King Amulius. She hadn't seen him since she was a child. His beard had grown gray and wrinkles lined his weathered face, but his eyes were the same cruel blue and looked all the more menacing in the dancing firelight. Her hand flew reflexively to her stomach. Remembering herself, she quickly lowered it, suddenly thankful for the layers of billowing robes. The line of priestesses formed a circle around the sacred flame, heads bowed. Rhea stared at the stone floor and hoped her hood would obscure her face. Good evening, priestesses. I'm pleased to see the temple gleaming clean and our goddess's altar well tended to. Your efforts have not gone unnoticed. The sanctuary was silent. Rhea knew better than to think the king had come solely to compliment their housekeeping. As you know, to be a Vestal Virgin is perhaps the highest honor a woman can receive. You are all such lucky girls, so privileged to serve a sacred purpose. But as you also know, while there is no greater honor than to serve Vesta, there is also no greater sin than to betray her generosity and that of your king. I've gathered you all here because of a disturbing rumor. 
a rumor that one of your fellow sisters has broken the most sacred vow a Vestal can keep. Chastity. She laid with a man and brought shame to the goddess. Rhea kept her gaze on the temple floor, her heart pounding in her ears. As you are all aware, the punishment for breaking a vow of chastity is death, and the execution is particularly excruciating. Traditionally, the guilty are buried alive, but the chief high priest has just proposed a punishment I find particularly inventive. Molten lead poured down the gullet. We could go through a series of trials and question each and every one of you, or we could settle this right now, and you can tell me who among you has committed the crime. So please, help me. Help yourselves. As Amulius's back was turned, Rhea raised her eyes, just in time to see one of her sisters, the ones whose robes she'd stepped on, point a trembling finger in her direction. Rhea's stomach dropped. Thank you, sister. Vesta will reward you, surely. Now, who do we have here? Rhea did not cast her eyes to the ground this time. There was no hiding now. She felt a strange feeling rise through her chest, a feeling she had not felt since she was a little girl racing through the markets with her brothers. She lifted her head as Amulius approached and met her uncle's gaze. He stopped as he saw his same cold blue irises staring back at him. Rhea? Hello, Uncle. It's been a long time, hasn't it? Ten years? Eleven? Time flies when you spend your days in forced servitude. It was you? I spared your life, and this is how you repay my mercy? I never asked for your mercy. Much like most of my life, this condition was forced upon me. I broke no vows. Not that you care, I'm sure. What do you mean, your condition? You should be delighted to know you'll be a great uncle soon. To a son of Mars, no less. My greatest hope is that one day he places your head on a spike. As she said these words, Rhea relished the look of fear on her uncle's face. For months she had cursed the life in her womb, but in that moment she felt powerful, for she held the one thing that Amulius was afraid of, a true heir to the throne. You're lying. <laughs> no, dear uncle, I'm not. With that, Rhea opened her robe and let the garments fall to the floor. She stood in a simple shift, her round belly silhouetted by firelight. Amulius looked on in horror. So, what'll it be? Molten lead? Or will you bury me alive? Ultimately, Amulius chose neither. As his guards dragged Rhea Sylvia from the Vestal Temple, he grappled with the decision of how he would kill his niece, but more importantly, the child in her womb. Amulius was terrified of the god's wrath, 
Would they punish him for taking the life of an infant with Mars' blood running through its veins? Would the war god curse him on the battlefield? These questions plagued him for months, and as he deliberated, Rhea Silvia sat in a cell, drawing closer to birth with each passing day. She was near term when Amulius made his decision. He reasoned that if it was the elements that killed her and her son, the gods would be none the wiser. So he ordered that as soon as Rhea gave birth, that she and the child be thrown in the Tiber River to drown. But in the end, Rhea Silvia gave birth not to one son, but two. <laughs> Hush, little ones. I know the world is a cruel place. You never asked to be here, and neither did I. But here we are. <laughs> And only for so much longer. Let's not spend it crying. Rhea spent one day with her sons before Amulius's guards tore them from her arms and dragged her from her cell. But as she heard her baby boy's cries fade in the distance, Rhea didn't shed a tear, for they weren't truly hers. They were never meant to be. The sight of her execution was familiar. A thicket of trees stood behind her, and in front of her, dozens of willows dipped gracefully into a river. But instead of moonlight, they were bathed in the fading glow of the setting sun. She had finally returned to the strange willow grove of her dream. Rhea laughed bitterly as the guards dragged her to the water. Mars had kept his promise indeed, her sacrifice in exchange for generations of glory. Her sons would survive, but only at the cost of her life. Up next, Romulus and Remus's journey begins where their mother's ends. They've terrorized the innocent for centuries, wreaked havoc on our greatest heroes, and struck fear into those who tell their stories. Travel deeper into the legendary mythology behind some of the world's most famous creatures in the Spotify original from Parcast, Mythical Monsters. Dragons, giants, demons. Every Monday, come along with me on a journey to uncover the beasts of the past and ask what they really represent to mankind. From the unresting undead known as zombies and the venomous mane of Greek mythology's Medusa to the destructive tendencies and tentacles of the Kraken. With just one listen, you'll discover that these mythical monsters aren't merely adversaries from folklore, but rather a reflection of the darkest despairs man once had. Follow Mythical Monsters free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. King Amulius watched from a distance as his niece was thrown into the Tiber River. The way she had laughed as his guards dragged her to the water's edge had made his skin crawl. But then, a moment later, she vanished below the surface. The current was swift, and Rhea Silvia was weak from childbirth. She could not fight it. 
Amulius looked to his left where the infants lay sleeping in a basket. He stepped closer, gazing curiously at the sons of Mars. He marveled at how such tiny beings could pose such a threat. As he stared and wondered, one of the infants yawned and opened his large, dark eyes. Roused by his brother's movements, the other twin awoke as well, revealing irises as gray-blue as his mother's and the king's own. Amulius felt a chill run down his spine, and then, unexpectedly, a pang of guilt. How long could he continue to kill his own flesh and blood? No, witnessing Rhea's execution was enough for one day. He would leave this to his servants. I've grown tired, I'm afraid. Marcus, I'm entrusting you to see them drowned. It should be a simple enough task for one man. It's not like they can fight back. With that, Amulius left the woods with his guards in tow, leaving his servant with the newborns. But as Marcus approached the basket to carry out the deed, he froze. Inside, the baby boys cooed and whimpered, The reality of the request suddenly hit the servant. Though he was loyal to his king, he could not bring himself to murder these innocents. But neither could he leave them in the grove for Amulius' men to find. Marcus picked up the basket and gently placed it on the water's surface. When the king asked him if he had put the infants in the river, it certainly wouldn't be a lie. Marcus let the basket go and watched it disappear down the river bend. The surge of the current miraculously slowed, and the little basket bobbed down the river as if floating on a gentle stream. The water carried its precious cargo past the outskirts of Alba Longa and its surrounding fields, and far away into a lush forest untouched by anyone. And there, the basket was washed ashore near a wild fig tree. The twin boys wailed from the shore, and soon their cries caught the attention of an unlikely savior. A she-wolf followed the sounds of the distressed infants to the basket and investigated. She nudged aside the blankets with her snout, But though any ordinary animal would have snatched up the helpless infants for a meal, this wolf wasn't hungry. She carefully sniffed the twin boys, curious, and soon their cries quieted to whimpers. The she-wolf gently lifted the bundle with her jaws and carried it to her den. The she-wolf nurtured the twins for weeks, suckling them and tending to them just as she did her other pups, And in that time, they thrived and grew. But soon, human nature came to reclaim them. (laughs) Faustulus, a local shepherd in the nearby hills, had been hunting the wolf for weeks. He was normally quite a gentle man, not prone to violence, but his sheep were his family each with a name, a personality, a history, and the she-wolf had been picking off his beloved flock one by one. So he set off into the wilderness, knife in hand, determined to track her down. He had nearly given up wandering the woods when he came across a cave on the base of a lush hill. 
Aha! I knew you couldn't hide forever. Faustulus readied his knife and crawled into the mouth of the cave, but as he crept further, he began to hear whining, the sound of pups. He stopped and for a moment considered turning back. As much as he hated the wolf, he didn't have the heart to leave her pups for dead. But then he heard something else. Faustulus followed the noise, rounding a corner, and dropped his blade. By the gods. There lay the she-wolf and her pups, but among the litter sat two cherubic human infants. One was fair-haired and blue-eyed, the other dark-eyed with a mess of curls atop his head. The babes babbled and cooed happily, and the wolf licked them in reply. But when she noticed Faustulus standing at the threshold of her den, she growled, baring her teeth. Easy. Easy. I don't mean you harm. Well, I did. But your fangs are rather convincing. You can't be all bad if you didn't eat these babes. Faustulus carefully knelt down and reached a shaking hand toward the infants. To his surprise, the wolf didn't snap. In fact, she stopped growling, instead giving each twin a tender lick. She then looked at Faustulus expectantly, as if giving him her permission. The shepherd took his chance and lifted the baby boys into his arms. He hurried out of the cave, but not before giving the wolf one last look. Faustulus realized that she must have harassed his flock for a reason, and somehow he knew she would never bother him again. When Faustulus brought the twins home to his wife, Akka, there was no discussion about whether they would keep them. Faustulus felt deeply that the wolf had entrusted them to his care, and he was in no hurry to betray the trust of an animal so sacred to Mars, lest he make enemies of the war god. And so Faustulus and Akka raised the twins as their own. The dark-eyed child they named Romulus, and the blue-eyed boy, Remus. Faustulus gave the twins a happy, modest life, nestled in the foothills outside of Alba Longa. They dwelled in a simple straw home and spent their days with their flock, learning a shepherd's trade. It was a peaceful existence, and while the thoughtful Remus was content with his life in the country, Romulus grew more restless with each passing day. Remus! Come quick! I have something magnificent to show you! Romulus flew down the hill, dodging sheep after sheep, as he sprinted toward his twin brother. But Remus hardly looked up as he arrived, his attention focused on a newborn lamb cradled in his arms. You will not believe what I just found! I've just stumbled on something truly incredible! Perfect timing! See, I have something incredible to show you! Remus lifted up the lamb to his brother. It let out a tiny bleat. It's a lamb. Isn't she a beauty? Ophelia gave birth to her not an hour ago. I'm calling her Antonia. Sure, she's lovely, but she's just a lamb. We've seen hundreds of them born this spring alone. Romulus, I need you to apologize to Antonia. 
Call it our first life lesson. We, we don't have time to delay, Reem. What I've got to show you is time sensitive. <sighs> what kind of mischief are you dragging me into this time? You love animals, right? Right. And I love eating animals. So much so that sometimes I wonder if our father should have left you in that wolf den. Well, we can't both be his perfect little lamb boy, can we? Romulus reached over to rustle Remus's white blonde curls. Remus ducked, still cradling Antonia the lamb in his arms. All right, fine, fine. What is it that you want so desperately to show me? Yesterday, I was chasing a rogue ram when I came across something magnificent. Cows! Big, beautiful cows! And not a man in sight! Oh, I see where this is going. If we get caught stealing someone else's cattle, we could lose a hand. And I was just starting to get good at playing the liar. You're not going to lose a hand. Plus, we both know your liar playing is bearable at best. If you're attempting to persuade me, you're failing miserably. Listen to me. These cows could change our lives. Why do we need to take the risk when we have a whole flock of sheep? Because sheep aren't everything, brother. I'm talking about milk, cheese, butter. Where did you say these cows were? The twin brothers walked miles across the foothills, further than Remus had ever been from their home. They crossed streams and forged through the woods until they reached a clearing Remus had never seen before. And there, just as Romulus had promised, were cows. My gods, you were right. What did I tell you? And better yet, no one is here. Catch. Romulus threw his brother rope and the twins got to work lassoing the livestock. But little did they know, they were far from alone, for they had crossed over to the territory of Alba Longa, the land of their birth, and the kingdom of their great uncle, Amulius. And the bitter king's spies watched them from the hills. Coming up, Romulus and Remus are drawn into a strange family reunion. Now back to the story. Romulus carefully worked the rope around a young cow's neck and tugged. Come on, you heifer! We're losing daylight! Meanwhile, Remus, Romulus's gentler twin brother, was taking a more patient approach. That's right. Just another step. My, aren't you beautiful? The Venus of cows, truly. Rom, you think the goddess will smite me down if I were to name a cow in her honor? Just as Romulus was about to respond to his brother's ridiculous question, he felt something. The hair on the back of his neck stood on end. They were being watched. Romulus spun around, his eyes sweeping the valley. Remus froze. Rom, what's wrong? Romulus didn't have to answer, because in that moment, a band of men came riding down the hillside, kicking up clouds of dust in their wake. Bandits! Run! Run! Romulus turned and ran, but his brother wasn't nearly as quick. A second later, the horses had overtaken him. 
By the time Romulus noticed his brother had not kept pace with him, it was too late. The riders were shrinking into the distance with their prisoner in tow. King Amulius sat in his chambers, doing what he did every evening, poring over the maps of his kingdom and drinking far too much wine. His concerns weighed heavily on him. Suddenly, there was a knock at the door. For the love of the gods, enter! One of his soldiers stood at the threshold with news for the king. His men had spotted two thieves on the outskirts of the city attempting to steal royal cattle. One had slipped away, but the other was being brought to Alba Longa as he spoke. The old king smiled. Nothing lifted his spirits like an execution. The men dragged a bound Remus into Amulius's throne room and forced him to his knees before the king. Remus knew better than to look directly at a king without first being spoken to, so he cast his gaze to the tarnished marble floor and focused on his own racing heartbeat. When my men told me they had caught a cattle thief, I hadn't expected someone so young. Pity. Such wasted potential. Tell me, do you know the punishment for stealing livestock in Albalonga? You'll... you'll cut off my hands? <laughs> no, my boy. The punishment is death. What? We didn't harm any of your cows. Not even a scratch. You can't be serious. Oh, but I am. We do not take our laws lightly here, nor our punishments. And for that reason... I meet every man whose life will end at the hands of my executioners. Now, let me see your face. Remus swallowed, and with his heart pounding in his ears, lifted his face to the king. Their eyes locked. Amulius's blood ran cold. By the gods! The face gazing back at him was instantly familiar. He knew those eyes. They were as blue as his own, as blue as the infant he'd ordered to be drowned 20 years before. Who are you? Where have you come from? Uh, my name is Remus. I come from the hills down the Tiber. My family and I are shepherds there. A and who is your family? What is your bloodline? I, I suppose I don't have a bloodline. I was adopted, as was my brother. Brother? You have a brother? Yes, we are twins. Amulius's face contorted in fear. Rhea Silvia's sons had lived, and now he had a child of Mars, a demigod, on his knees before him, chained for execution. If the gods witnessed him spill the young man's blood, Amulius knew their retribution would be swift. He motioned to his guards. Unchain him! Now! Amulius's men hesitated before hurrying to release the shepherd from his bonds. Now, leave us. Remus stood baffled as the guards trailed out of the room. They shut the chamber doors behind them, leaving Remus and the king alone. Amulius turned to Remus and took him in. The straight nose, the cupid's bow lips, the white blonde curls. This boy was the spitting image of his mother. 
Amulia suddenly felt a wave of grief and regret crash over him. As the old king spoke again, Remus was surprised to see tears in his eyes. I have much to tell you. You see, I know who you really are. It had taken Romulus hours to follow the tracks of Remus's captors to Alba Longa, but once he was within the city limits, he lost the trail. He'd walked along the streets and the market, desperately asking anyone he came across if they'd seen his brother. Finally, when he inquired with an old vendor, the man had pointed a gnarled hand toward Amulius's palace. As Romulus slipped into the old palace, he was surprised to find it empty, mostly. He could hear the off-duty soldiers laughing and chatting at the far end of the hall. Romulus crept behind a large pillar and watched, hoping to overhear something about Remus. But then he heard footsteps approaching. Romulus ducked behind another pillar as another soldier joined the rest. As Romulus looked out from his hiding place, he noticed the man had shed his weapon and helmet and left it within arm's reach. Romulus quietly gathered them up and hurried down the hall. In Amulius's throne room, Remus stood stunned. Everything he thought he knew about himself, about his brother, had been shattered in a single chance encounter. He was no child of nature nursed by wolves, no simple shepherd. He and Romulus were princes, demigods, but somehow he felt crushed. A strange heaviness pressed down on his shoulders with each new word that Amulius spoke. I have dedicated my entire life to power and have done horrible, terrible things to keep it. I have murdered my own flesh and blood, and now... I am alone. <laughs> and I'm old. An old man not long for this world. I've lived my life in fear of how the gods may punish me. But I see now that they have delivered me another chance. <laughs> and I do not intend to waste it. I'm sorry. I don't understand. You and your brother are the true heirs to Albalonga. It's my wish that you succeed me and take what is rightfully yours. Remus looked at Amulius, lost for words. The king sitting before him was a murderer. He had killed his mother and even tried to kill them. But Remus never knew his mother, and he could not see a killer in Amulius. All he saw was a desperate old man. Remus pitied him. I, I don't know what to say. I'm sorry, but I cannot accept your offer. Even if what you say is true, I am no ruler. Nonsense! You have noble blood running through your veins. The blood of Mars! This is your birthright! You must take it from me, please! The birthright you are offering me is one of corruption and violence, and I want no part of it. Your city is falling due to your own cruelty. I would sooner let it rot than accept. Amulius's face fell, but before he could reply, the doors to the throne room flew open. At first, Remus thought the guards had re-entered, but then he saw only one man in the doorway. It was Romulus, dressed in a soldier's uniform. Remus! 
But while Remus recognized his twin brother, the old king saw something very different. Sunlight gleamed off the plumed helmet and the spear held in Romulus's right hand. He was a fearsome sight to behold. When Amulius's old eyes adjusted to the blinding light, he recognized the stranger's dark eyes and black curls. The man that Amulius saw was no man at all. It was Mars. I should have known. Have you been sent here to taunt me? To punish me at the end of my life? Romulus was baffled by this clearly senile king. He sprinted forward to grab his brother, but as he approached Amulius, the man shrunk in his throne and began wailing in abject terror. Guards! Guards! Help me! As Amulius screamed for his men, Romulus panicked and drove his spear into Amulius's stomach. Amulius looked down to where the point had sunk into his belly, stunned, and then he began to laugh. <laughs> Shocked, Romulus dropped the spear. Amulius slipped from his throne and onto his knees, blood trickling from his open mouth. Remus looked on, horrified. Then he felt Romulus's hand grab his arm. Romulus, what have you done? I, I, I had to. He was screaming. Now, let's go. Now! The brothers fled as fast as their feet could carry them. But as they ran from the crumbling palace, they could still hear the old king's bitter laughter fade behind them. <laughs> Thanks again for tuning in to Mythology. We'll be back Tuesday with a new episode. Find out what happens when Remus tells Romulus of their true identity and how it tears the brothers apart. You can find more episodes of Mythology and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. If you enjoy Mythology, you'll love my other podcast, Tales. Tales presents fairy tales the way they were originally told, orally and unadulterated. Traditional fairy tales aren't exactly suitable for children, and every Wednesday we dive into another dark, classic tale. We'll be back next week with the conclusion to this epic story. Mythology is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Mythology was written by Alex Garland, with writing assistance by Andrew Kelleher. Fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Adriana Gomez and Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Joe Hernandez, and Rebecca Thomas. I'm Vanessa Richardson. <laughs> <laughs>